Well, we turn in the word of God to Psalm 117. You know, one of the great benefits of public worship is that you come to worship God, and for the time that you're there, you can forget about yourself. And you forget about yourself because your minds are lifted, as it were, from earth to heaven, lifted from your cells to God, and to contemplate for that period of time eternal realities, and then to see how those realities are worked out in life. Surely there is nothing more grand than to consider these matters and to look afresh at our God in heaven who rules over all things, who sent the Savior into the world for us, to redeem us to himself and to bring us to heaven itself as pilgrims on the narrow way towards heaven. Surely there is nothing more thrilling and grand than that. And so we have this little psalm before us. It is a little psalm, but it's a little psalm with wonderful truths embedded within it. So we look at the psalm under this simple heading, Three Arresting Truths. And I trust and pray that what the Lord says in this psalm is arresting, does arrest you afresh, that you might afresh glory in the Lord and rejoice because of him. Firstly, the plan of God, verse 1. The verse says, O praise the Lord, all ye nations, praise him, all ye people. So he's dealing with nations and people. So who exactly is being described? Who is being referred to? Well, the term nations is also translated in our Bibles as Gentiles in Genesis 10 and verse 5 where we read the isles of the Gentiles and their nations. It is also translated as heathen. In Leviticus 26, verse 33, I will scatter you among the heathen. But nations is also correct in itself because of Genesis 10, 32. The sons of Noah after their generations, in their nations. You may say, well, what's the point? Well, the point is this, that the nations are part of God's plan. Let that sink in for a moment. The nations, the Gentiles, the heathen, that's you a part of God's plan. Remember, this was the promise to Abraham. We can't look at every verse, but we'll take, shall we say, a, a quick stroll through a few passages just to remind you of this particular truth. So in Genesis 12 and verse 3, And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth 
be blessed. Well, just in case you're not convinced, Genesis 18 and verse 18. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Maybe that's not enough. What about Genesis 22 and in verse 18? Genesis 22, 18. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. There's a staggering comment. Is it not a staggering comment by God? Abram obeyed the voice of God. And here's the promise. The nations shall be blessed. Well, what about Genesis 26 and verse 4? And I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven and will give unto thy seed all these countries and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes and my laws. He could have just said my commandments, but no, he piles up one term after another to reinforce and demonstrate to you the sheer magnificent mercy and kindness of God, how multitudes are blessed because of Abram nations. In verse 2, he says, for his merciful kindness is great toward us. In other words, he is saying, the Gentiles shall experience what we Jews already possess. And that's staggering too. Why are you saved? Why have you heard the gospel? Because of this plan. Now, if the heathen, the Gentiles, the nations, the people are to praise God, this means that he must become their God too. And the implications of that are equally staggering for us. For God to be their God, then they must know him and come to believe him and believe in him. Which means that in turn, these Gentiles, these heathen, these nations must give up all their idolatry and superstition. Why must they give up their idolatry? Because you can't serve God and idols at the same time. God is a jealous God. You can't love the world and love God. So these Gentiles can't love Jehovah and love their idols. So they will have to abandon their idols. They must turn from their idolatry onto God. And that tells you when that happens, that a true work of grace has been done. Now, if they are to believe, then they must 
hear the word of truth. And that hearing of the word must be accompanied by that sovereign, mysterious, supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Because if the Holy Spirit does not accompany the word, the hearing will simply be superficial. But when the Spirit and the Word are together, the Word will enter into the heart and will change that life and turn that idolater into a worshiper of the true and living God. My dear friends, we don't have any need or reason to be pessimistic about the future. Are you pessimistic about the future? You may be pessimistic about yourself, and you may be pessimistic about the land in which you live. But as far as this work is concerned, you have no ground nor warrant to be pessimistic about what God's plan is and what God has done, is doing, and will yet do. So if these Gentiles, these nations, these people are to come to faith, they must hear. But in order to hear the word, there must be a preacher, a messenger, that be sent to preach the word to them, which means that a preacher must be raised up and sent to preach the word. Isn't that what Paul tells us in Romans 10, verses 14 and 15? How then shall they call on him in whom? They have not believed. And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Here is a most Incredible thing in itself. The world is full of religions. But what the world needs is not another religion. It needs a gospel. That's what the world needs. And it needs preachers who know the gospel, who believe the gospel, to preach that gospel. And all that tells you that the word of God is a powerful thing. Romans 1.16 says, It is the power of God unto salvation. The word of God is a mighty thing. It's a sword, is it not? A hammer, a fire. Because the word is the voice of the living God. And that is why in our Protestant and Reformed meeting houses, the pulpit is in the middle and not to the side. Why? Because the Word is at the center. It is the Word that we come to hear, not to hear a preacher's stories or to be a spectator of something that's being performed for you. But you come because of the Word. The word of God, that word 
of salvation, that word of promise, that word of hope. That's what we come for. And to give you an example of how powerful it is, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9, For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Where is he speaking of? Thessalonica. Part of the Roman Empire. A Roman town with Roman citizens. And he says the word came to Thessalonica. In that Roman Empire, where those nations, those Gentiles, those heathen were living. And what happened? They were transformed by the word. They turned from idols to Jehovah, to Yahweh, the true and living God. <clears throat> Chapter 2, verse 13. For this cause also, thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which he factually worketh also in you that believe. It works effectually. The word of God shall not return unto him void. It shall accomplish that for which it has been sent. So here's the question. Do you believe the word? Are you absolutely convinced in your minds that the word of God is indeed powerful. That it needs no supplement to make it powerful. That it's powerful in itself. Do you believe that? I could lose my head and say, do all the elders believe it? Do all the deacons believe it? Do all the members believe it? Do all the adherents believe it? Do you believe that the word of God accomplishes what it has sent, been sent to do. Or have you lost faith in the word of God? Lost faith in the reading and preaching of the word of God. Well, in light of what the psalmist says about this great plan, Perhaps you might say to yourself, well, did it actually happen? Is it happening in our world? Well, Acts 13 and in verse 46, then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. That is, these Jews. But seeing ye put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. So here in the book of Acts, you start to see the fulfilling of all those promises in the Old Testament that the nations, the Gentiles, heathen, but start 
to be hearers of the word of God. Here is the moment. So in Acts 15 and in verse 7, whenever the church has met in session to discuss what's happening, Peter rose up and said unto the men and brethren, Ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my voice should hear the word of the gospel and believe. There it is, my friends. Acts records for you the promise unfolding, being fulfilled, being accomplished. God kept and keeps his word. Romans 15. And we'll read verses 8 through 12. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, for this cause I will confess thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. And again, he saith, rejoice ye Gentiles with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. And again, you see what he's doing? He is giving you a series of quotations from the scriptures of the Old Testament. And again, Isaiah said, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles in him shall the Gentiles trust. Here is this remarkable and astonishing plan that in due time, the Gentiles, the nations, the peoples would hear the word of truth, would hear the gospel of salvation, that they would be brought by the Holy Spirit to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, here you are this evening. What are you? By birth, you are Gentiles. Yet you are Gentiles gathered with other Gentiles, praising this God, able to testify the power of God and the power of the Word of God, and that you, in your misery and sin, were arrested by God and brought to your knees in submission to Jesus Christ, the very thing that Romans 15 says, that in him shall the Gentiles trust. Now, what makes all this astonishing? If you had been born a thousand years before the Incarnation, as a Gentile, you would have perished in your sins. For the nations perished. If you'd been born a hundred years before the Incarnation, you would have perished in your sins. But Christ came into the world to save sinners, and Christ commanded the disciples, the apostles, to go into the world, to go amongst the Gentiles and preach this gospel, preach the word. That's why you 
have heard the word. There was a time, as you know in your history, when this whole island were pagan, cannibals. What happened? Someone brought the word to this land. Why? Because they knew there was power in the word. That sinners living in darkness needed to be set free. They had to hear the word of God. You're here you are. You've come to worship God. And isn't it absolutely thrilling that you are part of this incredible plan? Before you were even born, you were part of this amazing and astonishing plan of God. That in the plan of God, you, a miserable, rotten, hell-deserving sinner, would hear the word of God. And that somehow you didn't understand then, but now you know. The Holy Spirit regenerated. And suddenly, you said, I actually understand this now. And I must believe in Jesus. I must have Jesus for myself. So the church was singing of this plan before you were even born. Isn't that a wonderful thing? The church, even before the incarnation, was singing of this great plan that the Gentiles would become part of that church. Isn't it magnificent? Was it not worth driving to this meeting house and to sing these things and to hear these things and read of these things? Incredible. Marvelous. Supernatural. And gracious. But secondly, the gospel of God Verse 2, for his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endureth forever. Here is a remarkable summary of the gospel. And don't those who are saved need to salivate over the gospel too? Don't we need to hear the gospel as well as sinners? Don't we need to be reminded just how magnificent it is, how thrilling it all is. Four things. One, effectual grace. For his merciful kindness is great. This word that is translated great in this verse is elsewhere in our Bibles translated as prevail. So for the benefit of younger ones, Genesis 7, 18, the waters prevailed. Psalm 65.3, iniquities prevail. So this grace is great precisely because 
it prevails, it overwhelms, it floods, it drowns us, so to speak. His merciful kindness is great. I have been drowned, drenched, overwhelmed by grace. Grace has taken hold of me. That's what he's saying. He is telling us it's all of grace. His merciful kindness is great. It's all of grace. No works are part of this. It is grace that teaches, that leads, that guides. Grace accomplishes all of these things in our lives. Titus 2, verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Grace brings. It is grace that brought, he says, salvation. Grace appeared, and grace taught. What does grace teach the Lord's people? Here's what it teaches us. How to live soberly, righteously, and godly. There's a sermon in itself, I suppose. The things that grace has taught us. What does a Christian look like? Well, here it is. Here are those marks and characteristics of a, of a sinner overwhelmed by grace and taught by grace. It's grace alone that achieves all of this. Isn't that why he says, for by grace are ye saved. It's grace alone. So it's effectual grace because it's great. Second, it is particular grace, he says, toward us. Now it is important that we do emphasize this because some are apt to be embarrassed by it. Embarrassed by discriminating grace because a whole culture with all its irrationality says it's against discrimination. Well, grace discriminates. Think of what the Savior taught. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. Or you think of the words of Galatians 2, and in verse 20, which I'm sure you know so well, Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. He says the faith of the Son of God. He isn't saying Christ's own faith. Nor is he even saying faith in the Son of God. He is saying the faith which the Son of God gave me. That's why it says the faith of 
Jesus, give me faith, he says. And then he proceeds to tell us regarding Jesus. He loved me and gave himself for me. How humbling, how staggering. That a sinner converted, sitting with other converted sinners. Say, so isn't it staggering that Jesus, the Son of God, loved me? And equally staggering, he gave himself for me. Isn't this why scripture says, if any man glory, let him glory in the Lord. A true Christian never wants to talk about themselves. In my context and background, you know, testimonies are all the rage. They've been all the rage for two generations, consequence of other things that happen. And, you know, the unpleasant side of all these testimonies is how everybody wants to talk about themselves. What kind of testimony is that? People love scandal and tittle-tattle. That's why they want all these testimonies. They want people to come along, talk about themselves. We don't want to hear about people. We don't want to hear about their lives and their past. But we do want to hear about Jesus, don't we? Because that is the staggering thing as Christians. Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. So there is that us and them, that discriminating grace in our world. There's a third element, it's sovereign grace. His merciful kindness. And since it is of God, it cannot be of us. It cannot even involve us. We make no contribution at all to grace. If you add anything to grace, you're damned. It must be all of his grace and his alone. Why is it that Rome rejected all of this? Because it made all their masses and all their pilgrimage and all their confessions useless. That's why they rejected it all. This is really why all the religions of the world hate Christianity. Because all the religions of the world have the same thing in common. Giving people something to do. All the cults give you something to do. You need to do this and that and the other. And hopefully if you've done enough of this, that and the other, it might get you enough merit to get into heaven. What's the message of the church and the world? It's this. His merciful kindness is sufficient. He will take us to heaven.
Lord Jesus Christ, John 15, 19 says, if you were of the world, the world would love us own. But because you're not of the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hated you. Every single Christian is a living demonstration of sovereign grace. Every Christian. You are that living, breathing witness to the world. God, save me. His merciful kindness, sovereign grace. There's a fourth element, certain grace. And the truth of the Lord endureth forever. Here's a note of assurance. Why shall grace prevail? Why is grace great? Because God's truth endures forever. This sentence about truth, it's not misplaced. It's not a disconnection here. It means do not doubt what the Holy Spirit is saying here. Even when providence seems contrary to all the promises, even when providence seems contrary to the plan of God, don't you doubt God. Don't you doubt the work of God. Don't you doubt the plan of God. Don't you doubt the grace of God. Grace reigns. Remember, God cannot lie. And all that is true of grace, all that is true of this whole plan, is to be believed because it is God who says it. Remember, it is truth that Jesus himself spoke in John 17. John 17, verse 14. I have given them thy word, and the world hateth them. Verse 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. It is truth that captivates us and holds us. We must have truth, my dear friends. Anything less than that is a failure. So it's certain. Everything is stated here. The certain. For God has spoken truth. And the truth endures. Well, let's very quickly move thirdly. And then two points of application. The command of God. The psalm finishes, praise ye the Lord. And the language here is an imperative. It's a command. In other words, the Holy Spirit, through the psalmist, says to you, here is the required, the commanded response of the church, of the Lord's people 
to these incredible truths. Here is a divinely imposed response upon us. Praise ye the Lord. The Hebrew, of course, as you know, gives us our English word, hallelujah. The response of the church, the response of the people of God is hallelujah. That's the commanded response. So if you have been following the words of the Holy Spirit here written, this, says the Holy Spirit, is the conclusion. Hallelujah. And this personal praise ye to every individual in this congregation from the front to the back. Each individual. Here is God's command to you. In light of these incredible truths, praise the Lord. So I pose this question. Is every individual in this congregation able to do this? In your hearts, are you saying hallelujah? Does your heart beat faster with more intensity because of this incredible plan of God? This astonishing grace of God? You know, our greatest problem is often our self-centeredness. It's a terrible thing, self-centeredness. We're so wretchedly subjective. Everything's all about the three of us, me, myself, and I. That's how we think. It's all about self. We always seem to be asking, well, what's in it for me? When really what we should be asking, what is God telling me about himself? About his works? His wonderful works? Notice there's an exercise, homework for you. You know, take out your psalters and note how often the psalmist speaks of the works of God, the wonderful works of God, the wonders he has done. And then look at what goes before and after, what we are to do in light of those wondrous works. Why has God recorded all these wonderful things? That as we study them, meditate upon them, we give praise to God. That will be our response. So here is a command. Now the command doesn't say, praise ye the Lord when you feel like it. There are many times we come to worship God and we don't feel like it. We just feel miserable. But the wonderful thing about being miserable is there's something for miserable Christians to sing. What is that? The Psalms. The Psalms are for miserable Christians to sing when you're feeling miserable. They're also for happy Christians to sing. 
and rejoicing Christians to sing. So it's not when you feel like it. You don't bring your feelings to the word. You bring the word to your feelings because your feelings are so fickle. We're constantly changing every five or ten minutes. Whereas the word is unchanging. The word is glorious and magnificent. Look at all this grand truth that's in this simple short psalm. And the Holy Spirit says, if you really grasp it, here's the great conclusion. Praise ye the Lord. It is truth, heavenly, eternal, redemptive, revealed, and scripturated truth that the Holy Spirit has given to you. And you praise the Lord because of this. Well, I'll finish with these two short points of application. The first one has to be this. The world has never fought idolatry. The world loves idolatry. Only God, by his word of truth, has taken on idolatry. And God, by his word, has taken sinners from idolatry and made them worshippers of himself. The world's not going to fight idolatry. The world's not going to fight superstition. In fact, the world loves idolatry, wants superstition. Why does the world oppose the truth of God? Because the word of God's against idolatry. You have a good example of that in Acts 19. You know the passage well. Acts 19, verse 23. The same time there arose no small stir about that way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation, and said, Sirs, you know that by this craft we have our wealth. Moreover, you see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying, They be no gods. The gospel fights idolatry. It bankrupts the machinery of idolatry and the industry of idolatry. When they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath. The church sits too easy with the world, my friends. The church sits too comfortably with the world. The stance of the church with the world is confrontation. In other words, we bring the word of God to the world and say, this is where we stand. And secondly and finally, I encourage you this way. The more you forget about yourself and contemplate God, 
the more you will praise him. Let's forget about ourselves and be taken up with God. God-fearing, God-centeredness. Hungry for God, panting after God. May the Lord bless these words to your hearts. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we marvel at thy word. How privileged we are to have it. This wonderful and scripturated redemptive revelation. We bless thee for thy kindness to us. We bless thee that the gospel was preached to us. The word of God read to us. The Spirit opened our eyes to the Word and brought us to faith in Jesus. Forgive us if we have not praised thee as we ought. But oh, now that we have seen afresh the wonders of grace, may we become totally given over to contemplating thyself, meditating upon thy being, thy works and thy word, and to go on our way for the rest of our lives, praising the Lord. To have, as it were, that hallelujah upon our lips. Bless still thy word, even through the night watches, that this psalm may be memorable to us. Stay with us, that we might think further upon its content. And so be blessed still by the word. This we pray in the Savior's name. Amen.